Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this far-ranging conversation with special guest, singer-songwriter, liturgist podcast co-host William Matthews at The Table, Oklahoma City, we talk about black identity, the ways in which God is black, Star Trek and spirituality, and hanging on to the story of the church through pain and disillusionment. We hope you enjoy. I'm a huge fan of, I mean, I've loved William's music for years. I love all his music, but I really love Cosmos, the last record. I think it's just exceptional. It's so great. So let's, let's talk about this album. I would love, you know, my very first message here two weeks ago, because this is, this is our third time meeting uh, formally like this. Um, the whole message was on continuity and discontinuity. Uh-huh. I would love to know how you see that record in continuity with William Matthews as he has been and in discontinuity where it's departure. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me start with the discontinuity. Uh, so my first album came out almost eight years ago called Hope's Anthem 2011, and it was distributed through Integrity Kingsway. And it was like a very produced album, very much a Christian worship album. Um, my friends joked with me. They're like, they're like, it's a good record, but it sounds like a bunch of white people produced your music. <laughs> I was like, yeah, kind of what happened. <laughs> but uh, it was honestly a great foot in the door. And I, I love a number of the songs on that record. So I'd always wanted to do a second record. And basically it took me eight years to do a full length second album, which is kind of crazy. Um, so the discontinuity for me was having to go on the journey of disillusionment. And like, because I think, in between that, I released a lot of like singles and compilation records, worship singles that did really well. But um, also, oh, thank you. They're, they brought us drinks. Oh, is that yours? Oh, never mind. Go for it. No, I don't take it. You're good. Um, we had communion and now we're having G&Ts. Uh, I had a G&T with Father Richard Rohr once and I'm having one with you now. So oh, my this goodness. This is going to be great. <laughs> this does not compare to that. I'm quite certain. Yeah, yeah. I'm not in that category. But um, yeah. Eight years is a long time between projects as like an an album. But I think for me, I had to go on the journey of wonder and searching. And, you know, you preached a sermon years ago about, you know, when you, when you follow beauty, it'll always lead you back to God. And you kind of framed it with the Magi and and the people looking for the Christ child um, and how they followed a star and it led them to Christ. Um, And so for me, um, I just had to live a bunch of life. I had to tour the world. I had to, write other songs. I had to go through, I was on staff at a church as a pastor. Like I just went through real like life changes and some of the heartbreak of the things that I went through created the songs that ended up on this record cosmos. And so for me, it was after you uh, go into full-time ministry, right? You almost like have this goal, right? I'm going to do full-time ministry. I'm going to become a pastor. I'm going to do this thing. I'm gonna be a worship leader. And then you get there and you go, Oh, now what, what do I, what am I supposed to do? Who am I? outside of this and you almost begin to feel trapped by it. And so Cosmos was basically about me doing spiritual searching and trying to find beauty and wonder again in the middle of the grind of ministry and worship. And from the outside, it looked great. It looked like I was living the best life I was. And in some ways I was, but in a lot of ways I wasn't. And so there was still like an ache and a pain there. And so music for me has always been a, a way to simply get the ache out. <laughs> Yeah. You know, to help heal the soul, soothe the soul from the ache uh, and the longing that you feel. So 
Cosmos for me, um, I actually took the title from Ken Wilber's book, Theory of Everything. You know, Spiral Dynamics guy. Anybody yeah. know Spiral Dynamics a little bit? Yeah. So Ken Wilber used the phrase cosmos and he used it with a K primarily to talk about integrative spirituality, right? Spirituality that uh, where you, you integrate your shadow side um, versus distancing yourself from it. And, um, and he basically used the, the word as a uh, type of understanding of God loves it all, like everything belongs using Richard Rohr language. And so I loved that. And then when I looked up the Greek word in John three sixteen for God to love the world, the word world is cosmos and cosmos is spelled with a K in the Greek. And so I just thought that was just a different reframing for such a normal passage, right? Like for God to love the world. Well, actually it's for God to love the cosmos and we're a part of the cosmos. And what does that mean? who am I in the cosmos? Not just who am I in my local church or who am I in, even in the world? Who am I, who are we in all of this? And so that was kind of the, the theme for the record. And, and every time I sat in a writing session in LA, like we would just talk about this for like an hour and just talk about cosmic spirituality and um, evolutionary biology and spiral dynamics. And how does that integrate with religion and anthropology? And so we were having a lot of me and some of my writer friends were just having a lot of real searching questions. And so the discontinuity was, I had to go through a lot of disillusionment to write this record. Mm. The continuity is, it's still me. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> it's still like, it, it's me at, at the very core. I've always been this guy. I've always asked that question. Even on my first record, I was asking questions. And so I feel like it's a natural evolution for me as an artist, for me as a writer. Uh, and I, I love the album. I think it's a masterpiece. And I don't say that about a lot of my work. Oh, I do think it's a masterpiece. And I, I, I hate for you to have to say it first in this podcast, because <laughs> I really do believe that. And I've said that to many people, you know, talking about the continuity. And it's funny because I literally, when I was living in Tulsa, saw you when you were still more charismatic worship leader in Oklahoma City. Yeah. And Okay, so we did come here. Yeah. yeah All right, did we did. I remember that. Did. Yeah. All right. But so like, I've been here before. I see continuity in that I feel like you're, um, it, it's, it's, it's just, it feels like your faith has expanded. It feels yeah. like the world has expanded. The, the ideas are there. They're just bigger, a little more inclusive, maybe. Yeah. It, that particular, though, stretch opened me up to two really particular questions I want to ask you, and I have no idea what you'll say. <laughs> um, but no, I don't think, I don't think the question's your mind. One is that I'm ready. So, and I don't think we've ever talked about it in these terms, but this is like, so this is an observation um, a little bit from afar. I mean, we, we talk, but this is in terms of like putting gears together here. I feel like when you were more William Matthews worship leader, you know, if I can even say these things as a white guy, you're a black man in a fairly white world with white leadership. I feel like part of what I've seen you do is... And I thought you even referenced it kind of in a drive-by way before. It's like there's been a, a coming to terms with kind of black identity and black church, a soul thing. I mean, you've always had a soul thing, yeah. but it feels to me like maybe in some ways you've connected with that more openly, like you're with that part of your history and your witness. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, I think my, my blackness is more loud and proud and open. Part, partially because, um, okay, so let me give you a little context. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan and Raleigh, North Carolina. I probably spent half my childhood in Detroit, the other half in North Carolina. Um, 
I went to many different education type systems. I, my first and second grade was a white assemblies of God school where they were preaching Christian nationalism, book revelation, eschatology. And it was also during, uh, the, uh, the first desert storm. <laughs> and so it was like, we were celebrating the troops, pray, you know, putting our hand on the Bible, praying to the American flag. So that was my first and second grade experience in Detroit at a white AG school that was primarily a Muslim neighborhood. <laughs> Cause that's Dearborn, Dearborn, Michigan. And which is now the highest, I think, per capita of uh, Muslims in the country. Um, and then my third through fifth grade experience was at a school called Catherine C. Blackwell Institute of International Studies, Commerce and Technology. It was a magnet school started by uh, a black woman that uh, really started, had this whole philosophy of integrative study, particularly for black students. And so every teacher that I had through third and fifth grade was black. It was very pro-black. I learned black history my, like, we had to recite Langston Hughes poems. I was studying the kings and queens of Africa in third grade. Like, we were studying Black art, Black history. Um, I mean, it was borderline Black Panther Party. <laughs> and so I've always had these very, like, diverse, like, contrast of experiences in my life. And so fast forward a number of years, we moved to North Carolina, um, primarily, you know, in a public, white public school. I felt like a lot of the ways that I, I, expressed blackness slowly but surely over the years just got submerged they went deep inside of me they didn't have room for expression primarily because of the environments that i was in just in my high school years and then later on uh when i started going to bible college pursuing ministry and leading worship like i was primarily doing that not in the black church it was the white church so my experience of learning worship writing and uh singing and background vocals and and all that like what we used to call back in the day, because I lived in Kansas City for a while, uh, prophetic singing. Like my whole thing was basically being around white people. And I think when that happens, part of you dies <laughs> just because it doesn't have space. It's not like, you know, like I'm not, when you're primarily not in a black world that centers black people, you just naturally have to conform and fit and talk a certain way and, and laugh at certain jokes and watch certain TV shows and go see certain films and read certain books, you know? But then I, over the years, I think it began to just add up where it was like, I'm just, I felt more alone. I felt more lost actually. And so it wasn't until about Trayvon Martin, it was 2014, that it almost kind of, I think that was a catalyst moment for, that was our generation's Emmett Till. And something like, it was like, it's something shook me out of my sleep. And it was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I have been living in a very white world, a very white, like I've, and I've been floating on a white privileged credit card check <laughs> because if you're black in a lot of white settings, you know, powerful white people can give you a cosign and you're, you're basically, you're white and everyone treats you like, you know, anyone can be white. <laughs> you just got to look like us, dance like us, sing like us, conform to us. But yeah, you could be white too. You know, whiteness is very inclusive um, as a power structure. And so for me, I think when, when the police brutality conversation started becoming mainstream in mass incarceration, it brought up to the forefront things that over the years had just begun to be so submerged. And part of that was a reclaiming of myself, reclaiming of my time, reclaiming of the years of work that I had done. Um, I had to reclaim myself and reclaim my blackness and reclaim my own identity and not be afraid to wear it loud and proud. Like that's also been part of the black radical tradition, right? When you look at people like James, uh, well, I, I would say musically, I'm thinking James Brown, Ray Charles, um, but I was initially thinking James Baldwin, Nina Simone, um, uh, Martin, obviously Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, uh, Maker Evers, like they're people that just wore it. Like Solange has a new song. It's perfect. Like my skin, my logo. 
And blackness has always been very like, because you can't escape it when you see it in someone. So it's very like forward and it's very like, yeah, I'm black. I'm blackity black, black. I'm black as black as like black it can be. Right. Even if I don't talk like it sometimes or whatever, my heart, because of my upbringing and my heritage in the black church, like that's in me. And sometimes people would get confused because they're like, well, you don't feel like a black guy. You don't talk like a black guy. You're not the, the whatever. And I'm going, yeah, because blackness is not a single representation. Like there's, it's a, it is a world within a world within a world. And so for me as a worship leader over the years, I think I, the more I honestly just garnered success and, and was respected because of the songs that I was writing, I felt a lot more comfortable to just to wear that and proudly wear my blackness as my logo. And also the times we were living in just necessitated it. So Truthfully, I, I feel like when I was a kid, I got like heavily indoctrinated with black culture, which was one of the most beautiful, brilliant times of my life. And truthfully, it was the most academically successful time of my life when I was surrounded by black people, by black teachers, by like the black church and felt loved and supported where I could achieve. And it wasn't until I actually went into all white schools that I started just being a mediocre student because I didn't feel inspired. Interesting. But I feel like a sleeper cell almost because when Trayvon Martin, Martin happened, it was like... <gasps> something activated in me and was like, you forgot yourself. You forgot where you come from. You forgot the tradition. You forgot uh, the legacy that blackness in the American sense has created, but also even in my own personal family history and legacy, like my grandfather was a minister and pushed through racial barriers. And I come from the church of God, Anderson, Indiana, right? Like not the Cleveland, Tennessee that you're from, but uh, there was a black and white split along those lines and the black church tradition created their own churches created their own campgrounds. Like they got together and bonded together and put money together to buy land in Western Pennsylvania, South of Sharon. And, and I'm thinking these are people who are marginalized and isolated back in the like, you know, twenties, thirties, and forties, black and brown people, poor black and brown people who came together to build a religious institution that honored them and gave them dignity. And that's like, I'm a product of that. My grandfather helped build that campground and, and lived on that campground pretty much the majority of his life. And my parents were around that. And so I grew up going to campgrounds and, and, and with these black churches, side note, uh, Kamala Harris, who's running for president of the United States. Yeah. I love Kamala. She actually grew up in church of God out of Anderson. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. I just read it's it. In, yeah. I just read it in her book. She talked about going to this local church of God church in Oakland. Mm. And I looked it up and it was in the same denomination that I grew up in, which wow. is a very unique sect. Uh, yeah, of, sure, sure. It's very different. It's not Kojic. It's mm -hmm. very church of God is very different. So all that to say, fast forward a number of years, I, I had my own history, legacy and tradition that I couldn't bring forward because people didn't have language. They didn't have understanding of that. And now because of the awakening of Black Lives Matter, um, I think Black people get to be a bit more like open and vulnerable. And we get to express our rage and our our tenderness and our vulnerability and our all of it gets to come forward in a way that never got to come forward eight years ago. Or if it did, it was very suppressed. And now there's spaces that actually allow for Black people to actually just exist <laughs> and be human. And so that's a kind of roundabout way of ask, answering your question. But yeah, you're totally right. Like I am far more black publicly so now, but I, I wear that as a logo and I'm proud of that. And if you don't yeah. like it, then. Well, I like it. Thank you. I like it. I know you don't need me to like it. Me <laughs> but I, you better like yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> continuity, discontinuity though. Um, and to me, I, I think these conversations are connected, but I'm curious to where, where you, you'd go. So you talk about even with the record, how 
And I mean, we've been together through all this, the deconstruction, the pain, the kind of having to take some things apart. And yet, you know, I've also seen like when William and I, I guess maybe two years ago now, we're at a, there was a small event, all leaders in Portland, Oregon, that was all um, a few of us convened a meeting basically on Christian resistance in the age of Trump. And oh, yeah, that was right um, after the, uh, not long after the election. Yeah, yeah, it was soon after the election. And it was a, and like, I remember you leading worship there and watching you really slide into, like you did it tonight, like for example, even together when we were sort of prophetically singing over Rachel Held Evans and, and praying for her, like doing your kind of prophetic charismatic worship thing. It was powerful. It was very spirit led. And that thing's always in you. It's always there. Uh, I continue to see that come out. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm thinking about like um, William and Michael Gunger. And of course, Michael's also a good friend. We did this great episode where, you know, and Michael, and of course, this is very, he's very open about this. Does it, you know, exactly self-proclaim to be a Christian anymore? And in a very wonderful way, because William and Michael are so close, they have this dialogue where William's kind of making the case for based on, because anybody knows Michael knows he's a beautiful person. Their family's beautiful. And, you know, that kind of based on the way he lives his life and the goodness of their, William's kind of framing that as a Christian. However, whatever you profess to believe, like, that worldview that he sees, why he contends that's Christian. And one of the things I thought was so spectacular about that is I thought the way in that podcast you frame the Christian faith, the contours of it, and what you think makes it what it is, like to me was as clear and concise and and yet also robust of a vision of the faith as I could imagine. And what I'm coming around to ask in the midst of all that is this. So how is it for you that in all the deconstruction and all the pain and, you know, like with anybody who's been part of certain kind of institutions, you go through a certain kind of betrayal, hurt or whatever, that your faith remained intact, even if it's mutated, transfigured in some ways. It's to me, it seems as vital and robust, if not more so than ever. So I'm curious as to like how you stayed in in that way uh, in terms of in the faith, if you'd even say it that way. Yeah. So it's a funny question and it's funny language always, right? Like, what does it mean to be a deconstructed worship leader? Mm. I don't actually know. I was actually thinking about starting a blog called Confessions of a Deconstructed Worship Leader. The right title. Because I'm like, I have more questions myself than actual answers. Um, I think it's simply about being honest to the story and the narrative of your own life. And I've always just been an honest, authentic person in that way where right or wrong, I'm going to tell you how I feel about it or be honest about it. And my deconstruction really, and I've gone through several deconstructions in my life, not even what's considered the popular term of that now, but I went through a deconstruction at 16 when um, my father was pastoring a church and we went through a church split. Like that was long before that language was out there, but that was how I left church of God was because I was going to live and die in church of God in that denomination. And that was going to be it. So I had to, we had to break free and most of my family has uh, left and thankfully so not speaking ill of them, but it's just, you can only be holiness or hell for so long (laughs) and and realize it doesn't work. Um, So I think I've allowed myself to feel how I feel, to say what I say. And I've realized I'm never wrong when I'm honest. So in my journey, there's, 
there's been seasons in time where I really didn't want to identify as Christian or I just didn't, I, I really just felt numb. I didn't care, you know? And there, I think because of certain experiences that I've had in church my whole life as a pastor's kid, and then later doing basically worship ministry and being a Christian artist, quote unquote. Um, I think there's no way for you to fully do it long-term without being sort of numb. Sure. It, it just really isn't. So whether you're deconstructed or not, I, I just think there's a party that is numb. You can't just travel the world and sing worship songs and be vibrant and alive for God always. You just won't be. And and a party you has to sort of shut down a bit to think of it as like a long game versus, you know, a short game. Cause I would easily tire out, you know, if we were if I was given my prophetic all every worship set, right? Like you just what is God saying right now? This moment I gotta hear it and say it and da da You just you whatever. So I think for me, giving myself time to breathe, to be honest, to feel how I feel, even if it's like, you know, I really don't care about Christianity. I just don't. And then, oh, you know, I really resonate with this about Christianity, like in allowing myself to fall in love with it, fall out in love with it, fall back in love with it, fall out in love with it. Like, because that's relationships, right? Like we go through that, the mundaneness of that, but also just the ebbs and flow. Like I, on my album, I talk about circular motions of shadow and light. We go through that like knowing and unknowing, learning and unlearning of God. And so I've allowed myself to unlearn God, to learn God, to unlearn God again, and then learn him again, and then don't care anymore. And then try to care again. <laughs> like There seems to be this push and pull, this ebb and flow. And I, in my album, I'm always singing lyrics like, you know, you're never giving up on me. You're always chasing me down or um, like almost this, this sort of uh I think I have a bit of a morbid view of sovereignty a little bit where I'm like, doesn't matter what I'm doing. He's coming after me or she's yeah. coming after me. Like, you know, I, yeah. I can, when I give up and I'm just like, ah, this doesn't matter anymore. It's like something like tugs at my heart again. And I'm like, ah, you just won't give up on me, God, whatever this, she, he is it. They are won't give up on me. I'm not married to any pronouns around it, but so yeah, for my journey, it's being honest, being where I'm at. And then on top of that, I think what was helpful for me was recognizing Western Christianity was not the only witness of the gospel. Major, like people that we were told to minimize, like Dr. James Cone. I had to go back and relook at black liberation theology because even in the black church, black liberation theology kind of has a bad reputation to a level. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had to go back and read it for myself. And it's funny because I read some of James Cone's early writings and I feel I identify with the rage he feels. There's a lot of rage in some of his early work. Um, and he's trying to merge Christian theology with the black power movement of the seventies and, and, and saying, I know God gives radical dignity to me yet. Christian theology is still important and, and especially important to marginalized people. So one of the things that I think constantly centers me in this circular motion, right. Of shadow and light is the knowing that God is black. <laughs> I just kind of came to that conclusion. That's what we talked about with Michael Gunger on that episode yeah. was God is black. And, and by black it's, it's a cultural, th- I'm not even as much making a, though I do think, Jesus was brown skin, if not actually black. I don't even really care about the literalness of what was Jesus' actual skin color as much as understanding that we worship a God of the oppressed. Yes, yes. And that he's a vulnerable God who sides with the marginalized and the oppressed. And in our yeah. current culture, and, I, and when I say current culture, I'm talking about the last 500 plus years of human history. It's 
blackness is the lower rung. Yeah. So to say God is black is simply not, you know, that, that recentered me to go, it's not about my exact skin color being represented in the Trinity as much as it is the reality of the metaphor of what being black means to the society and realizing that God sees and knows and identifies with me in that. So that was, that was everything. And then recognizing in James Cone, I'm totally stealing James Cone. He, he reignited my imagination with the gospel because he told me, I didn't talk. I talked to him like he's my friend. This is what you do when you're a five on the Enneagram and you read a lot of books. Uh, Those authors become like your actual friends. And you're like, you have conversation. I have conversations with Madeline Langle in my head. I have conversations, you know, like with, with some of these people from history, same way I do with Jesus. It's the same thing. Um, I actually is the same thing. Yeah. It's the same exact thing. Um, Great, great side trail. But my main point, (laughs) God's black. And then, uh, yeah, Dr. Cohn. Um, he told me that it's useless to think of your faith in terms of a man that died on Calvary 2,000 years ago when you can't put it together today with the lynching tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's useless. Like, how am I supposed to imagine a faith? And we sang, you know, in church today, right? Uh, we, I sang a hymn about the wondrous cross, but how am I supposed to imagine Jesus, 2000 years, a literal Jesus, a human Jesus, fully human, fully divine, dying on a cross for my sins and then resurrecting three days later when I can't put it together in the abuse of people happening in the here and now, when I can't put it together in the story of women in the me too movement here and now and recognizing that Christ is in that, like, how do I even think I'm, who am I worshiping a fantasy? Then I would have to be worshiping a fantasy in my own mind to not be able to put Christ together in the body of oppressed people today. It just, I can't. And that was like a shift for me to go, Oh, and, and the scriptures made far more sense. I actually, by reading Black Liberation Theology, I went, oh, that makes sense in Matthew 24 when you talk about sheep and goat nations, Matthew 25, sheep and goat nations, right? And you're saying, uh, you know, they're like, what are you talking about? When did we feed you? When did we, you know, clothe you? He's like, I came to you in the form of a beggar and you didn't feed me. He's talking to the goat nations, right? You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't take care of me. Meaning what Christ ascended and is now represent- representative of everything. And he's showing up in the least. And if I can't put Christ together in the least, how dare I even talk about Calvary 2000 years ago? Mm-hmm. That's just an idol. That's fantasy. Yeah. That's delusional. That's right. It might as well have never happened. Yeah. And so that for me was a big shift. It's not to say that I don't think or know if the resurrection was real or not as much as to say, if I can't partner with death and renewal yes. now, how dare I even say I placed my faith in it 2000 years so ago. Good. It's so good. Read The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Dr. Cohn's book. That was also transformational for me. I just love this whole riff, William. I feel like that to me is maybe where those questions are related. And even the record, because I feel like Cosmos, I feel like your faith was always something thicker and more intuitive and more from the gut. There was always a connection there that was not about the construct of white evangelicalism. That was a job you had for a minute. That was... (laughs) Like, and that's, and this is, I think that's the most frustrating thing for me sometimes in some of the broader conversations and culture. And I understand like, all you know is all you know, right? But I still feel like with so many people, it's like their assumption is white evangelicalism is the only Christianity they know. So it's like that or atheism. And I'm like, you know, I've not been a fundamentalist 
for 20 years. I haven't, you know, like really, I've not, it's like, so, I mean, I just like, and this might sound too inflammatory to the other direction. I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions or good things to happen, but in my mind, like white evangelicalism as a construct as a whole to me literally has nothing to do with Christianity. It just doesn't. Some people talk, it just, for me, it's not the same thing. Like I understand that it might be for other people, like a representation of the faith, but in my mind, it's like, well, of course that's not, that's clearly not what Christianity is. That's not what it's, it's never, it's never been what it was. So it's just very frustrating for me to always be in a place of feeling like, you know, that that's what you're somehow trying to defend when, you know, man, that all that's been out the window for me for such a long time. And I just, I don't know. I just, I think so many people for whom, because, and it's why I wanted to ask you in particular about kind of connecting with your roots and with the black church in particular, because I feel like, see, what I find on the other hand is that any sort of like progressive kind of spirituality that doesn't, what you see in the black church, we have the most robust example of cultural transformation ever here in America. We have it in our backyard. It's been done. And it doesn't happen without a soul. It doesn't happen without like a robust spirituality. So this idea that like without any kind of spirituality whatsoever, and that doesn't make me like, for me, it's not turn or burn. It has nothing to do with like hell and flames or whatever. I just think without some kind of a rooted anchored tradition that's larger and that has like room to accommodate stuff that's not Mm -hmm. fragile. (laughs) Everything I've ever seen, honestly, besides like black church spirituality strikes me as relatively fragile. (laughs) Very, very egoic too, more so than others. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, I just feel like, so that's like why why for me, at least for me, it's no judgment, but for me, it doesn't work without Jesus. It's like, there is, there is something to, there's a reason like for Dr. Cohn, like the cross so powerfully translates into the lynching tree. I feel like, absolutely. I don't feel like that's a unique riff. I feel like that's always what the story has been. And and like, and I think even going back to the church fathers and all that, I feel like, you know, there's an underground, yes, under Constantine, we can think about any and all kinds of deviations of Christianity over time. But I feel like there is a thread throughout the history of the church to where that kind of God on the underside, the God that's black. I love all that. Oh, yeah, Bless because you, black sister. is not. Um, hey, let's switch drinks this time. I hey, want you your drink. Okay, yeah. that's great. You'll like this because this is this was named after me. It was. Even, this is the yeah, Martin. I'm this having is the Martin. The Martin. And, and we're talking about theology. I'm also on Instagram I was about live. to shut this thing down to go to the basketball game, and then no, the Holy Spirit drinks. just came in and gave Brother Martin a that's fresh a way wind. to keep us. I know. <laughs> I guess we we'll have to have a couple more minutes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There, no, no, I I agree. And, also, too, I always, I'm a, I'm a beautiful skeptic. I, I, I use that purposely because I'm a wonderful skeptic. I'm not like a s- cynical skeptic. I'm, I'm a very much like a beautiful, I like to question everything, even myself and whatever. Um, and so for me, there's a, there's a wrestling that I even have to do as a son of the black church with the black church. Oh, I get that. And, and so there's a, there's a beautiful embodiment that I experienced from the black church that white evangelicalism could never give me if it tried. Um, no shade, um, <laughs> but lots of shade. Could never course. give it to me if it tried. Couldn't, yeah. could really never. And so, but also there's things that the black church has done to mimic white evangelicalism. Right. And, and there's been like, so I think a lot of us are wrestling with the, like I come from slaves. I come from slaves who took a, a white supremacist gospel. Like if you see some of the early texts that were given to slaves, lots of portions of freedom and liberation were taken out. Like, I, like you can go to like some of the like 
there's a, a, a museum of the Bible in DC that like actually has some of those original Bibles they gave to slaves, which ripped out like the story of Exodus and like all this stuff. And so like, I come from a people who took a white supremacist gospel and, and subverted it and created liberation and freedom for themselves and for people that looked like them. Why do I think I get to discard that or just throw that away like that didn't matter? Right. And I'm not saying that everyone has to be a Christian sure. as much because I'm like, you get to choose whatever you want to do. Absolutely. Like I, if you know, like if your view of God as James Baldwin say no longer serves you, then it's not worth worshiping. Agreed. Um, but I also know, and this is what being black has taught me. I do not stand alone. I come from a tradition. I come from a people. I come from a brilliant like race of people who have constantly time and time again subverted the notions of empire, the definitions of empire. That's that when empire says you're trash, yeah. we've said no, we're worthy and we're full of dignity and we're yeah. full of humanity and grace. Like James Baldwin said like I'm not your nigger, but if you need one, that more speaks to you. Mm. And like who can tell you that if not the Holy Spirit? Yeah. When the, the wow. narrative of empire is so powerful and wow. to, tries to define you and tell you this is who you are, it is, so, it is the Holy Spirit inside of you that gives you the power to resist that narrative. Mm -hmm. Only God and Christ inside of you can say, no, I'm a human. I'm beautiful. I'm brilliant. I'm, I come, you know, I come from generations that are, that were brilliant. I come from Kings and Queens. I come from royalty. I come from everything like, and that for me was worth is still is worth everything. That's why I even remotely identify as a Christian because I go, my grandfather was a Christian and it gave him dignity. It humanized him. It's part of the long, it's a larger story. The tradition the tr yeah. matters so much. It absolutely I, does. I, that, that's me. I, I feel like what Christianity, what Christianity is at, at its core is a liberation tradition. That's what it's always been. Yep. It's always been subversive. Now that doesn't mean it can't be hijacked and coerced absolutely. in an imperial way. We've certainly seen that. I mean, anything can be used, but it, at its core, I feel like that's what it's always been. And I think, I don't know, I think part of it for me too is that, you know, I'm also, I don't mean to take this in a different direction, but like I'm such a, um, I've never been, I've always been more of, I mean, I was literally an English major before I did any theology and I'm more of a literature person. So like, I've, I've never been all that rationalistic. I've always been kind of a mystic at heart. So like, yeah. I just like, whether or not how the story works on you, it's funny even now when I feel like I'll have these kind of conversations with people who are talking about like whether or not Old Testament stories are scientifically true. And I literally, I think to myself, like, why are you even talking about this? Who is having these kind of conversations? <laughs> like, have yeah. you, do, do you understand how to interpret literature? Like, why, why does this, why does this matter to yeah. you? Because like, that's just like whether or not there's truth in the story to me just has no correlation to whatsoever as to whether or not something's factually yeah. accurate. Like it's not the encyclopedia Britannica. No, no, no. I've never looked it at it that way. Like that. And like, and it's also the thing, like uh, we had some conversations in a, even in our team, you know, it's like, and this is where, again, I'm not trying to push back on everything. Cause like, look, I've done plenty of work around the old Testament and violence, the old Testament. You're whatever. an actual theologian. Well, I don't consider them. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. I don't feel like I'm a real theologian. I'm an, I'm an armchair theologian, but I feel like, you know, even we talk about some of those things when people act like, Everything in the Bible is so problematic. There are plenty of things in the Bible that are problematic, but this is the, my pushback for some, even some smart people these days. I'm like, how many fundamentalist Jews do you know? And there was, well, I don't really know any. There's a reason yeah. you don't know any fundamentalist Jews because they've never really, I say never, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. really had this problem. You know, nobody's- What nobody, about Second Temple Judaism, brother? Right, yeah, <laughs> right, fair enough. But like, you don't have people so much sitting, like, like agonizing over- 
whether or not Jonah and the whale is a literal story. Like yeah, no one yeah, is yeah, doing yeah, that. Yeah. And no one is reading like second Kings and thinking, well, we need to wipe out the infidels now and get the reign of God back in power. No, yeah. because they understand that was never how the text was supposed to work. They understood. I feel like even the ancient were, um, now I'm getting loose. I don't know what that's about. Um, <laughs> I know I can't get a word in. I'm like, okay, go for it. <laughs> like they were, they understood, they understood where their own texts were problematic and they let, you know, they let it work on them in certain ways. You know, it's like they understood that the story was moving towards mercy. I think from the very beginning, well, this, is, this is why we need artists to do theology. That's right. That's right. This is why I really think what we're shifting into is out of the legal constructs, which some parts of the new Testament, like Paul's using like very legal language to describe salvation. Again, if you're, you can use that language to describe it, but to say a love relationship or a marriage is only defined by the legal construct of it is so missing and devoid of actual passion and romance and life, the thing that makes it life. And so for me, I, I had to learn how to subvert these types of narratives that are being given to us in white evangelicalism when I would read Madeline Laengo, right? She would, she would say, people would be like, you know, what about, you know, the, did God create a literal seven day creation and, and earth is 6,000 years old or is it evolution? Right. And she's like, wrong question. Is it loved? Are we loved? Did God create it? That's a better question. If God created it, it doesn't matter how it got created, how you came here, you know, it, and this also, I, I, this also goes even for, I'm bringing it to the particular. We often shame, this might sound out of the blue, but I, it, trust me, it goes somewhere. We shame people who get pregnant out of wedlock, especially in the church. And we so focus on the way they came in, came into being. Well, you came here out of sin, <laughs> right? And we put this shame on people. And I go, but a child is here. And it's funny because if you get pregnant out of wedlock and people that have experienced that supposedly, whatever that means, right? Um, and they felt shame from their families because they didn't have sex the right way. And then people feel like this child is now, we used words like, we created words like bastard to describe children that weren't born from a quote unquote loving wet, you know, union of marriage. And I go, that's so derogatory. And that's so wicked to me. It doesn't matter how they got here. They're here. And this is why we need artists because they can see the beauty of it. And they're not caught in the legal transaction of this. You know, who else taught me this, believe this or not Spock from Star Trek. Wow. Think about this, right? You have this whole, I think I'm gonna get real nerdy real quick. We have this whole like alien species called Vulcans who have, who initially in their early phases of evolution were very like volatile, violent, and passionate. And then over time they, they used logic to basically move into emotionalist states, right? So the whole notion in the original Star Trek series or the whole premise was here's this Vulcan named Spock who ha who's half human, but has always suppressed the human side of him, which includes emotions and irrationality. And then he becomes best friends with the ca Captain Kirk, James T. Kirk, William Shatner. And he helps him reclaim his humanity. And he ultimately comes, when you watch the TV shows into the movies, what Spock's lesson is, is logic and, and human emotion go together. The rational and the irrational actually move together. And he understands. And so he becomes more evolved in compared to everyone in his own like alien race because they're clinging to like dispassionate logic as the source of everything. And he's going, no, actually. And there's moments where he's doing the irrational thing and they're like, that's not Vulcan of you. And he's like, I know <laughs> because it, you know, it necessitates it. And so anyway, I say that to say only artists can tell you that storytellers can tell you that poets can say that James Baldwin is like, 
Like only the poets, the poets tell us the truth of who we are. Priests can't do it. (laughs) He's like, uh, politicians can't do it. Like only the poets. And this is why we need poets and artists and creatives using the kaleidoscope lens to see reality because right. Truth is a cluster as Walter Brueggemann tells us of security, well-being, dignity, and respect. Truth is not simple, like systematic ABCD linear, logical, transactional Christianity. Truth is relational. It is a cluster of things. And if, and we have to see multidimensional to understand truth. Otherwise, we fall into these traps, which white supremacy has put us in. Truth is definitely a cluster, brother. Truth, and, that's a quote um, of it. That's sweet. And truth the, is a cluster. And I love that you just preached Star Trek unto us that way. That was quite an anointed Star Trek riff. I, and I tell you something, even while you brought up white supremacy, I don't know if this is a weird side note or not, but that integration that's there. See, this is what I want to tell people. Like, I get that when you grow up in fundamentalist churches, they won't let you think about science or evolution. I understand wanting to burn it down or whatever. This is where I want to tell people like what you don't want to do is buy into this idea that rationalism is good yeah. and that anything that's emotional, intu- intuitive that comes from the gut is bad because that my friends actually is whiteness. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, like this idea of like, like just, just get into your head. That is not what we well, want. That's what the Puritans brought over. That That's their brand of faith and religion and spirituality, which we're still imprisoned to so oh, much Lord. today. Yes. Um, and our, Paradox or paradigms of understanding around the body being bad and shameful mm-hmm. and wicked and you can't trust the body and you know all that just that's also been part of my deconstruction too but I've always had that learning how to trust the body yes that the body not only keeps score but it carries wisdom that's right that's and there's right. a wisdom to the body that you know your traditional like rational thinking won't give you but you won't know until you get in your body yeah and that's why celebration, dance, and ritual are so important to ancient cultures because they're embodied mm-hmm. cultures. Mm-hmm. And I also think that's why they're snuffed out. Like, there's a reason mm-hmm. why we, we also, like, I have these weird things. I always like mourn things from the past, like they're present. I was like, man, I'm, the FBI really did kill Fred Hampton from the Black Panther Party. Like, they like mm-hmm. really killed it. And I would like still get mad about that sometimes when mm-hmm. I learn that and think about it. But I also think about what did we do when we destroyed the great library of Alexandria? Mm-hmm. We destroyed the ancient wisdom from world cultures and, and, yeah. and world religions that actually taught us something. And part of the reason they were destroyed was because there was an intentional effort by white supremacy to snuff out African religions, to snuff out anything that remotely didn't bow to the idol of rationalism. That's right. And so that's why when you study world history, it's hard to actually, it's hard to find real African history because a lot of it was destroyed in colonialism. Yeah. Why was it destroyed? Why did they destroy it? Because mm-hmm. It presented a wisdom of the body. A lot of these ancient religions gave us more intuition and body religion than what abstracted Western Christianity was trying, like how they were trying to colonialize the world using that framework of Christianity. Yeah. I think a real natural transition here, when I think about embodiment and integration, I think about Russell Westbrook. It's 815. (laughs) I have got to get my brother to the basketball game. We're going to go see the Thunder and the Blazers. We love you. Could Could we please one more time let William Matthews know just how much we appreciate him being here. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you, guys. What a great night. I hope you enjoyed my drink. (laughs) <laughs> I did. It was good. The Martin. It's good. Nice, the Martin. It is good. Fantastic. So love you guys. We'll see y'all next week and have a good night, everybody. Thanks again. Thank you for listening today. More from Jonathan Martin. Go to JonathanMartinWords.com 
and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep going, go to patreon.com slash sonofapreacherman and we appreciate your support. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.